This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 10. Our session asking what different prevalence studies and population estimates from the U.S., U.K., and Germany can tell us about the challenge of when, who, and how often to screen for and treat liver disease. In this conversation, the group works to draw conclusions from the many messages in the broader conversation. Two key thoughts emerge. One, we need to get the scale and scope of response right. Too much isn't much better than too little in terms of economic sustainability. And two, today, we lack the data to know just how to do this, nor are we necessarily collecting the data when we have opportunities to do so. Expect Surfing Nash to revisit all these topics in future episodes. We want to do that because one challenge in the coming fatty liver pandemic involves creating appropriately scaled, cost-effective strategies for screening and stratifying large swaths of the adult population. This conversation addresses elements of that challenge. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Louise Campbell. We can do the basics on that, just to pick up, that even if it's fatty liver index, that we can work with, we can educate with, and then we've got the higher risks as they come through. So I think that proactivity is potentially a really key area for me, and education. We all know that prevention is better than cure, but early detection, again, in a more cost-effective way. It's not going to be cheap to start with, but it could reap reward when we look at the diseases and the commonality of that, rather than illness response. Ian, let me ask you to respond to the last few comments. I'm going to try to draw a subtotal and ask everyone to frame their closing comments around that. Ian Rowe. Yeah, so wellness is a really important thing. It would help society if we were weller for longer. The question is twofold, whether healthcare is the right place to encourage wellness or whether that really is a sort of social responsibility for, in the UK, we would talk about local government and public health in terms of green spaces, active travel, um, better access to less calorie dense food all of those types of things as public health interventions to try and drive the wellness and prevent illness that that Louise is talking about the second question about early diagnosis well early diagnosis is of greatest value when there is an intervention downstream and the UK has a very well developed diabetes prevention program for for individuals who are either morbidly obese or who have pre-diabetes so impaired fasting glycemia or a borderline elevated HbA1c and that is a program that's available through the NHS for patients to encourage weight loss and to be more active and it's effective and it's cost effective the issue is is that it's cost effective because there are events that follow in the near term if patients don't achieve those goals of weight loss and becoming more active and improving their blood sugar and their heart disease events their peripheral vascular disease and limb saving interventions the problem that we have is if we describe non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in its broadest term in that 37.5% Ewan's fatty liver index example the number of events that's going to accrue even over a 10-year period in that population is extremely small, meaning that any intervention from a healthcare perspective that you can put forward is either going to be have to be extremely cheap or it's not going to be cost-effective. So there's several aspects to this. We have to improve our preventative wellness approaches through public health, green spaces, active travel, improved diets. And then we've got to have targeted interventions for those people who are at risk of progressive liver disease. And that's down in the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5% of people who've got significant 
fibrosis who are at risk of developing events in the future. And, you know, I, I heard what you said, Wayne, about not waiting until it's too late. But the risk is that we end up, you know, focusing on the on the wrong proportion. If we try and focus on everybody, then we may not be able to achieve a great deal from a healthcare perspective. And that's where I guess my focus is. But understanding that it's got to be whole system change that will enable us to live better, weller for longer. So, um, Ian, I'm going to let that be the straw statement that Wayne, Louise and I respond to as closing statement instead of the one I was about to make, because it's not the statement I was about to make, but it brings up a lot of the same issues from a different perspective. Whichever one of you two would like to go first, just in closing, what you agree with and maybe don't agree with in Ian's statement. And given that that statement, that, that the numbers are, I think, accurate, what courses of action would you like to see us taking, us as a societies now, given that we're talking about numbers that have a lot of people at the top of the funnel, relatively small percentage of people many years later at the bottom of the funnel, but on the way through the funnel, lots of bad stuff happens. Very technical way of putting it, please forgive, but I think that, that's kind of what it's at. <laughs> well, I'm going to jump in because I'm going to leave Wayne with the last bit on that. For me, there's two parts to it. Yes, I completely agree with Ian that this has to be public health driven. I'm not necessarily aware or really that it should be NHS driven, but we need publicity around that. We need about the reasons. We need to bring liver into the conversation as to why you're doing it because while we continue to ignore it it's a problem we've got integrated care groups and pathways being designed with not one person from hepatology or liver disease around those tables you cannot do an integrated care pathway if you are missing a significant part of your cardiovascular funnel your endocrine funnel your liver disease funnel but it's the other part that i look at is not just what we see within hepatology it's the working life lost it's the amount of days that people are affected. They have really poor health and quality health for years on end. These things we can solve by looking earlier. Yes, it's not particularly cost effective if you segment it out because each one has its own costs. But if you put them together as a whole and you stop those people becoming pre-diabetic with morbid obesity or their rising HA1C because you've put that education in at a lower level. And going back to what Pam O'Donoghue said last week, we can use videos. We can design really interactive, responsive equipment now. There's ways to do this. All of those funnels, it's not just the liver funnel. They're all expensive funnels. We need to be targeting it longer. We need to be doing it before they're 40. We need to be getting liver into the pathway everywhere. We need to raise its awareness. They said last week we need to make liver sexy. We do. How do we do that? I don't know. But it needs to be part of the conversation in everywhere. Wayne, your floor. Wayne Eskridge. Exactly right. I mean, we we have to do it in a prudent, cost-effective way, but what that means is that we have to measure things. And what I would would suggest is that Fib4 should be tracked lifelong and people should understand what that means as they go through their life. That is a thing that Yarn and various people have shown has really good cutoffs. And as, as a person, if you can see a car wreck coming, you're more likely to do something about it. And FIB4 offers us that opportunity within liver space. But more broadly, as in line with Louise's comments, an F1 NASH is more hazardous than diabetes. An F2 NASH is more hazardous than smoking. And we care very much about diabetes and smoking, and we fuss with them all the time. 
time. And we don't care at all in society about liver disease. So I think that we have to engage the question of liver disease in the same way that we do monitoring for, for heart disease and high blood pressure and those kind of things. Something like Fib4 or one of the other low-cost tools that we can watch over time and include in our discussions, you know, gives us an opportunity to create the points where an intervention or a more aggressive engagement with that patient about that particular problem can make sense economically. Thanks, Wayne. That's great. So let me take privilege and wrap up. First, let me mention that Jorn was good enough to join us knowing there was a threat that he would have to leave early, and that threat materialized about 12 minutes ago. So if you're wondering why you're not hearing a closing comment from Jorn, it's because he unfortunately had to leave us, number one. Number two, part of my reaction to everything we've heard is that we don't have enough data yet. Here's what I mean by that. The number 37.5% could be a marker for everybody who's headed down three or four different paths, or it could be a number that doesn't matter very much because, in fact, those aren't exactly the people who wind up going to diabetes or cardiovascular. On the way to liver, we know a lot of them aren't going to ever materialize with significant liver disease. So if we knew that 37.5 really was a canary in the coal mine number, then it would become an exceptionally helpful marker to get on top of patients having various problems early. Louise, I'm mindful of the famous Vlad and Donna moment where Vlad says, I'm a hepatologist, and Donna says, if I'm dead, I don't care why I'm dead. If 37.5% is simply a marker for who's going to have serious liver disease in 20 years, you're not going to have an easy time getting social momentum around it. If, on the other hand, it is as we believe, many of us, the marker that a whole bunch of different cascades of bad things could happen independently or related to each other, starting with that number, then it becomes a wake-up call, and then we become a lot smarter in terms of teaching people how to deal with it. Why I think this matters, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode, I didn't think this was exactly where it was going to land, but it does make the point, is that if we're afraid to use the right numbers because they might be too high, when we don't know enough about what they mean, then we really put ourselves in jail. We can't get the scale of the problem right. We can't get the nature of the problem right. And as a result, we wind up having a variety of very compelling philosophical debates without enough data to tell us exactly where the answer lies. What the five of us have done, and particularly the four of you have done collectively, is point up that there are lots of different ways you can look at the same data, such as it exists right now. And one of our real challenges is going to be getting better data. Now, next week on this podcast, we're going to talk about NAIL NIT, which is an initiative to get better data towards a different set of issues, but something that's very exciting. I'd love to put together an episode in a month or two, we have to figure out with whom and exactly what, to talk about what's the smartest way to take databases like what you've got, Ian, and what Jorn just reported on. How do we analyze those to start to answer the question, well, to what degree is the liver truly, as Stephen says, the canary in the coal mine? And if so, which coal mine or which coal mines? Or is it a coal mine? You know, I can lose it on the metaphor right here, but I think you get the point. Because if we understand that better, then we will know what to do. I think societies with good data tend to do the right things. Not always, but they tend to. We each have a compelling reason from where we sit to look at the same data and say, gee, I see a different risk. Better data should clean that up. But to do that, we've got to actually commit to it. That's my closing thought for today. I welcome any of you to disagree or uh, say something you were thinking of while I was talking about that came up. Or if not, we can just sign off and go home. Uh, I'm 
I'm just going to look at you guys. You tell me. If I'm going to be cynical on what you've said, but for insurers, Wayne said earlier, you get the society that we pay for. And I suppose if you're an insurer, if you're in pharma, you want people to live longer because you get an insurance premium. That's the cynic in me. That's why pharma need to get involved. That's why everybody needs to get involved. You want people to live longer, healthier lives from everybody's perspective, even the cynical side. I haven't thought about that, but what else does anyone else have to say first? Well, I was really going to agree with you, Roger, about the need for better data, because the better the data, the greater the clarity on the value that the testing approaches will bring. Because if your test and the subsequent intervention is tied to improvements, not only in liver health, but reductions in cardiovascular morbidity or diabetes complications or whatever, then that changes the value of the testing. And that will really help with, you know, we, we often lose sight of that and Nash is still a, a relatively young disease. Stephen talks perhaps about it coming through its adolescence, but there's a lot that we still don't know. The closer that we get to interventions, the better an idea we're going to need to have about its impact, both on liver disease and outside, so that we can understand where its true value is. The great challenge that you propose, of course, is that doing this in an intelligent way as a society, when we have a lot of competing interests for a limited pool of money, is, is the hard thing, because we struggle to allocate the resources. There are people or organizations or industries that have a far better grasp of the flow of funds, and they don't share them well in, in a lot of cases. So the patient, I think, is represented often the least in some of these conversations. So I don't know how we solve that in particular. Oh, the impossible just takes longer, and I don't say that facetiously, and I totally agree with you. Look, the study that closed the books on cholesterol was a study that cost $150 million spent by the U.S. government in the mid-1980s. I don't know what that translates into today, but it's a ginormous number, and you couldn't get the U.S. government to spend that money today. And therefore, you're not going to get a study that's that unself-interested, which isn't a word even, but it's the best I can do off the top of my head right now. Louise, there's an apocryphal story told about the 1980s or 90s, I forget which one, it must have been the 90s, could have been the 80s, 1990s, the, um, the government of an Eastern European country going to a large tobacco manufacturer and telling them that they were going to tax the stuffing out of them because of all the healthcare costs that they were bringing to society. And the tobacco manufacturer came back to the country with a bill saying, here's what you owe me because by having people die in their 50s of lung cancer, here's how much money I'm saving you in the next 30 years of their lives. So I, I think this question of <laughs> right. um, who wants whom to live <laughs> Live longer and why may be a little bit more complicated when you get down to the dollars and cents than than one would like to believe because I want to believe that what you said is absolutely right but I keep having that tobacco company in my mind and saying this is a tricky business. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to look at NAIL NIT, an exciting effort to speed the path towards basic NASH and NAFLD knowledge, particularly on non-invasive testing, by aggregating data from multiple manufacturers into a single data set. Our panelists will include two leaders in the academic effort to do this and two pharmaceutical executives with experience and passion for this effort. It should be excellent. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you next week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.